welcome to the Pyramid Podcast, where free lads discuss all things the English Football Pyramid. On today's episode, we'll take a look at the main results from the FA Cup third round before a wider conversation on the state of the competition. We'll discuss some of the big transfer stories and manager changes in the headlines, and then we'll finish up with Laura, who talk us through Oval's 2-0 win versus Bath and preview tomorrow's trip to Taunton. I'm your host, Alex Murphy, and once again, I'm joined by Tom Gallagher and Tom Lawrence. So, boys, FA Cup uh, third round weekend. Uh, cash your minds back to Thursday, uh, a game that had no real action in it, Everton versus Palace, apart from one moment, Lauro. Um, Calvert-Lewin shown a straight red card for a tackle on Nathaniel Klein. Uh, just a little bit on that VAR decision, uh, another one that was in the headlines. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm sick of talking about VAR, to be honest with you. It's just the same as what we've said before. You could probably listen to five or six of our pods that we've done and <clears throat> you'll you'll find the correct answer in... Uh, response to what happened there. I mean, if the ref had given it as a red card in real time, then you can understand it a bit more because maybe it looked a little bit dangerous. His leg does sort of straighten out and his studs are up. But the fact that they've gone back, he hasn't given it. VAR have had a look at it and they've gone back and freeze, done the whole freeze frame thing, that's, which takes everything out of context completely, um, just shows they don't know how VAR is supposed to be operated and how the rules of football work. So it's just another one to add to the pile of uh, horrible VAR decisions and, uh, you know, another nail in the coffin of VAR in my mind. But it died a long, long time ago. So I'm just waiting for it to be scrapped, to be honest with you. Yeah, the one thing that I was thinking is after that um, game on Thursday, I think it was TalkSport that was on uh, on the radio in the kitchen and Jamie O'Hara was on and he was talking about that decision. He was like, yet again, here we are talking about VAR. Um, but the game was nil-nil in itself and the whole kind of thing was that uh, there was no action in it. It was a terrible game, an awful FA Cup tie. Uh, neither team would have wanted the replay, that sort of thing. But it provides talking points for the media, doesn't it? And I know that people say they're fed up of talking about VAR, but all of it, you have like ref watch, don't you now on Sky Sports News and every kind of match of the day, there seems to be a VAR talking point and things like that. Tomo, do you think that they just talk about that because that's the big thing and otherwise they talk about other things, like other topics from the game? But Or is it a bit that VAR is now, for the media, a really good talking point that gets people kind of uh, interacting? Uh yeah, but if you take away VAR from that incident, I'm sure you'll have some Crystal Palace fans or people on Twitter um, saying the referee should have sent him off. And then they might look at that incident anyway without VAR and say the referee should have sent him off. So the reality of most of these decisions are, um, look, VAR is in place, so we argue about VAR, but... But we're, all we're arguing about is an official making a decision. It's just how they get to the decision um, that sort of that that's changed over the last ten years. Is is well, have they looked at it from one one angle or fifteen angles? The hope the, the hope I had for that challenge on Thursday, actually, which is you see very rarely these days. I've actually I think I can only remember one incident that has happened is where the VAR calls the referee to the to the monitor and says. I think you need to have a look at it here. And then the referee looks at it, sees what we all see and goes, no, I've made the correct decision. So thanks, but no thanks. Um, but unfortunately, it's, it seems to be that they slow it down so much. And they, they're obviously, we can't, we can't hear what they're saying in their ear, but they're obviously saying 
look, the force is this, the, the angle of the boot is this, the studs are up, all of that sort of stuff. And it's feeding into the referee's um, mindset, I guess, um, to make that decision. But, I mean, anyone who's ever played the game at any level could have seen that that wasn't a red card. Um, I know we've seen some shockers this year, but that was just dreadful. But, look, the game was dreadful anyway. So I guess you're right, that was a talking point, but... That would be a talking point in any game of football. And another thing is Everton are now going to be without Calvert-Lewin. Is it for three games for a straight red? Yeah, exactly. So it, it gives Premier League managers even less um, motivation to want to play their best teams in the FA Cup, a competition that's already on its knees a little bit in terms of its importance and prestige um, compared to what it once was. So just a calamity, I think, that one all round. Yeah, indeed. Um, what one thing I, I was just going to ask uh, Tomo on that was that is obviously Everton could now appeal that. Is there anything that they will appeal the Calvert Lewin thing with everyone universally thinking it's so dreadful? Has there been anything on them appealing it or anything in social media that said that they're likely to to sort of get that ban overturned? Yeah, they appealed it straight away. But they, still... appealed, they appealed it straight away, and I don't. We haven't got the results back yet of the appeal. But you'd like to think common sense will, will prevail because, like Laura says, three-game ban for that, it's, an, it's a shambles. And Everton are down there. And it's not like he gets banned for the next three FA Cup games. He gets banned for the next three Premier League games. And I guess he'll be banned for the um, the replay as well. So he'll miss two Premier League games. So, look, it's a shocking decision. And you, you have to feel for um, Everton, Calvert-Lewin and Sean Dyche in that, in that moment. One final point before we move on as well is um, what's really, you just said there, Tomo, that, that's resonated with me is um, you don't hear what the VAR official saying in the ref. So you kind of see it slowing down and you have a bit of an idea of it. But in like cricket, if you're watching cricket and it goes to the third umpire, he kind of talks through the decision, doesn't he? If you go to the TMO in rugby, the, the referee's got his kind of hand in his ear, but it's also cut screen with the TMO judges who are talking in front. I think it would be really uh, important step in the right direction for VAR if it is to stay and be accepted where we hear that conversation for the justification of it, because that would probably make some of these decisions, A, stand out as even more ridiculous, but then long term, get us better standards because you'd listen to them talking and be like, no, that guy can't can't work VAR. Well, look, if let me just jump in quickly. I, I think there needs to be a proper due process. I know this is a really boring chat, actually, but there needs to be like a proper process of um, the VAR guy, the video official, showing the referee the video or the clip. And I don't think they should be allowed to show it slow-mo ever. I think they should show him all the different angles and it should be all the real-time angles and then let the referee make the decision. I actually don't think, other than saying Andre Mariner or whichever referee did it, go to the screen because I think you made um, a wrong decision or I think you've missed one here. I actually don't think they should be able to talk to him. They should just show him the, like, the angles all in real time and then let the referee make the decision. And that, that seems like a better way of doing it because clearly these VAR officials are taking the referee to the screen and they're manipulating all of the different angles and all of the slow-mos and obviously manipulating their words because if the referee doesn't agree with them, then I guarantee you that VAR official will get reprimanded by Howard Webb. 
And then he might yeah. not be on VAR for the next couple of weeks, or he might get relegated to the championship. And then it's like, it's a difficult one. I know it's a pretty boring conversation, but... Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think there's a problem with the VAR officials. Obviously, they need to justify their job there. And you talk about like the PGML, Howard Webb. They've got to answer, I guess, on Monday morning after their decisions have been made, what how they've come to their decisions. And I reckon they're slow, like the Dominic Calvert Lewin one. You slow it down and they freeze frame him with a lock leg, with his shin, uh, with his studs up to someone's shin. And I reckon they're thinking to themselves, if Howard Webb says to me, why is that not a red card? I don't have an answer. Yeah. And it shouldn't be like that. Do you know what I mean? It should be the ref hasn't given it. I don't think there's enough there to overturn that as a red card. Move on. But people are just trying to cover their backs. Yeah, it's, and they're not when... using common sense, are they? Because they they're not they don't feel empowered to make a mistake. Essentially, no, exactly. So... They're just thinking to themselves, "I've got a liability here on my decision, so I need to cover my ass." And the best thing to do to cover my ass is to be safe and send him off. The yeah. safe option is to say, "Yes, it is a red card," and yeah. then you can rescind it, rather than say, "Oh, I've actually missed that one, and I can't explain to Howard Webb why studs up to a shin isn't a red card." Um, uh, and that's what it is. So that, but again, that's the whole nature of VAR, isn't it? You, you, the the person that's operating the VAR is an official that's got to justify their existence, so to speak. So sometimes they're going to feel that like they have to go in more in depth, and that involves slowing down and freeze frames, and then things look so much worse out of context. But again, we've had this conversation so many times. Yeah. So, but. Some the be the best performances that referees have are ones where you don't really notice the ref, do you? He sort of just lets the game flow and things like that. And surely games where there's no contentious VAR decisions, as in it's not in the mainstream media, it's not on match of the day, it's not being spoken about on podcasts and on the radio, means that in all likelihood the VAR officials have had a good game as well. So it's like less that we see from them, the better. Doesn't mean they're not doing their job correctly or they're not justifying being there. It just means they've got stuff right. So, yeah. yeah and just hopefully. before we just before we move on on that, before VAR was introduced in England or in football, PGO PGMLL, the um, authority on this matter, they predicted and they thought that VAR would only in intervene in one every four games. So on one occasion in every four games, you would need VAR, and that was okay. before VAR was introduced. And now look at it. It's yeah. a joke. Right, let's leave that VAR chat there. I'm sure we'll be uh, revisiting it again fairly soon, but uh, we will nip that one tonight. Um, Sunderland, nil, Newcastle, three, Tomo. Started off uh, last Thursday on the pod where we spoke about the, uh, the awful decision from Sunderland to decorate one of their bars in Newcastle colours. They've then lost the derby 3-0. And if social media is to be believed today... Uh, apparently the Wi-Fi went down, which meant that they couldn't charge Newcastle fans for drinks. And therefore it was almost like a free bar uh, at the stadium, alike Newcastle fans are calling it. Uh, an absolutely awful day for them, but uh, for Newcastle, an important win for them and for Eddie Howe. Yeah, look, oh, like this is the first derby or time we're derby since 2016. And all of those things around the, the derby that we spoke about, they're all tap-ins. They're all free. They're, they're all absolute tappings that Sunderland should just get right, and for them to to miss all of those open goals um, feels like it sort of almost created a negative atmosphere before the derby itself. And and obviously then Newcastle they play their strongest eleven because we spoke about how important it was for Eddie Howe not to lose that game, 
And look, it was it it sort of what it, it was what it was. It was a top ten Premier League side against a top ten Championship side. Um, apart from maybe a 10, 15 minute spell in the second half when when Newcastle went 2 0 up, Sunderland looked quite good then, but you got to take game state into account there. Newcastle had just gone 2 0 up, they'd probably take their foot off the gas. Um, but yeah, it was, it was an important and impressive win for Newcastle, and all round a bit of a shambles for Sunderland. There's not really much to add to that. I was surprised to hear that it was Newcastle's first win in that derby since 2011. I know they've not played since 2016 but obviously they played plenty of derbies in between 2011 and 2016 so um so yeah look good to get that um that monkey off their back i guess and, and win a derby and bragging rights yeah big win for newcastle another two goals for alexander Izak as well which i think takes him close to double figures uh for the season at the halfway point he got 10 last year for newcastle obviously go on to to beat that, but what a signing he's been. And obviously, uh, Newcastle fans be absolutely buzzing to to win a derby at Sunderland. Laura, team uh, in non-league uh, South or National League South, I should say, uh, with Yeovil Maidstone uh, into round four. Um, and I think you uh, watched a bit of an interview with George Elakobi, who said he was hoping to get his old club Wolves in the next round, but a good story for them. And obviously, probably at that level, some much needed funds for them. Yeah, good win for Maidstone. I mean, Maidstone-Stevenage doesn't sound like a massive upset, but it is three leagues, and that's a National League South team going into the fourth round now. And this is, I mean, we'll probably speak about it later, but when we talk about should they seed the third round for the big teams to play the little teams straight away, as it is, it allows a path for someone like Maidstone to get even further in the competition, which is essentially what football competition is about. You want to go as far as possible. Um and George Ellacobi, what I like about the non-league system, particularly in this country, is we have lots of football characters that you'll probably would have seen before and heard of, but just haven't got a job, obviously, in the upper estuals of the league. And they're applying their trades lower down. And George Ellacobi, to be manager of Maidstone, going to Stevenage, uh, or I think it was at home, actually, but getting a win against Stevenage and then calling on his ex-Wolverhampton Wanderers for the next round is lovely stuff, isn't it? And although it, they'll be going into the fourth round, that's that will be like the seventh round for Maidstone because they'd have had three rounds before the first round proper. Um, so it's a great story. And I don't know when the draw is, but I don't know. Are they going to be hoping for a big boy or will they hope for the lowest possible team in there and see how far they can go? And could they be the furthest reaching ever National League south side? You never know. The competition does throw up lots of stories and they're the biggest story left in it because they must be the lowest ranked team. So... Uh, yeah, nice to get an upset upset on third round weekend, and uh, well done, George Allen Kobe, great guy. Yeah, we'll co we'll come on to that in a bit more detail when we talk a, a bit more about the kind of state the FA Cup competitions in. Um, but really interesting conversation point around a team like Maidstone. Do they want to just keep getting winnable games, uh, or perceive winnable games and get as far as they can, or do they want to in round three or four kind of land a big fish and Arsenal and Man City a, a Liverpool? Um, that then kind of secures them probably a TV slot for one, but also half of the gate in any FA Cup game. So we will come on to that. Just mention Liverpool there, Tomo. Uh, they went and won again at Arsenal, ground out a result 2-0. Arsenal, though, missed a whole host of chances. And obviously we spoke on the last pod about where Arsenal would need to strengthen um, and find someone to put the ball in the back of the net if they're to go on to to win the league. But if they're to win any trophies, it looks like they need someone who can get them sort of 20 goals a season. Yeah, yeah, that game was 
look, Arsenal's performance, I thought, was very good. And they sort of dismantled Liverpool. And Liverpool looked almost... Well, they looked leaderless, especially in the, in the first half. Um, missed Van Dijk massively. Um, but Arsenal, who have they got to blame? Probably Kai Havertz having a massive spliff in the dressing room before, before the kickoff because he was just so chill when it came to, like, the ball and it just dropping at his feet in and around the... Um, the twelve, like the sixteen-yard box, or whatever you want to call it. Um, he took too many touches. He's just, he's not very confident in front of goal. And then if you compare that to, say, Luis Diaz's finish, which was absolutely electric and ruthless, um, sort of apples and oranges. And yeah, it did. It made me think they need, they do need to sign even Tony. I, I tweeted on Football Tweet a picture of Tony saying this is exactly what Arsenal need. And I also tweeted saying if Kai Havertz shot Tupac, he'd still be alive, um, <laughs> because because I look, I, I thought they were they were really good. It was just it it was one of those games where once you don't get that goal, you you almost felt like it did feel like Liverpool might nick it, and look, they did, and it was a great result for them. Yeah, I mean Havertz not the only one to blame though. Saka looks in pretty horrid form at the minute. Um, Odegaard obviously wasn't great Martinelli not producing the numbers he was last season uh, we spoke on the last pod as well that Arsenal were sort of winning games ugly and that uh, potentially a sign of uh, champions but their form has just gone on to show that actually they just weren't playing very well and had got lucky in a few games so probably cause for concern there for Arsenal they're down to the Champs League now which is obviously a very very difficult competition to win and one that's not done before and then the Premier League where they're starting to kind of lose a little bit of pace and City and Liverpool looking pretty ominous for that. So could be another trophyless season for Arteta. And if it was to be Loro, do you think there'd be question marks about him staying as Arsenal manager? I think he'd be under a lot of pressure to begin next year with. Um, and it's, and to be fair, the start that they made, particularly last season and even this season, have normally been really good and they've still not going on to do anything. But I, I think Arteta's to blame yesterday. Arsenal made the chances, but he had Havertz up front. We know Havertz ain't a striker. We, we know he can't put the ball in the back of the back of the net. That's why he didn't last very long at Chelsea. The whole point of signing Havertz was to bring him in and I think try and utilise him as like an eight and a half in midfield, not to stick him back up front where we know he's absolutely fruitless. So if you start Eddie and Ket, I mean I don't re- particularly rate Eddie and Ket here as someone being at the top level, but he'd have scored a couple of those chances yesterday. So we talked last week about yeah Saka, Odegaard, Martinelli, Trossard. These guys need to be chipping in with way more goals like they were last season. That's fine. But yesterday, they created the chances. And Kai Havertz in particular, as you've just said, missed three or four absolute guilt-edged ones, which a striker would have scored. Um, But they didn't have an out-and-out strike on the pitch. And that's down to Arteta. Yeah, indeed. But another another competition over for Arsenal, I'd say down to the Prem and Champs League for them. Um, And you're probably right. I think Arteta, if he did survive the summer, if he did next year so their form needs to pick back up again in the league rapidly but you say survive the summer just like if he doesn't win the Premier League or Champions League does that mean it's a failure for for Arsenal another trophy season after being where they were last year in the league where they yeah, kind of they'll, came... quali- they'll qualify for the Champions League so they'll get that that pot of money there'll be no danger of him losing his job and if not, not, qualify- in the, not in the summer Definitely not in the summer. But if it, if they don't win anything this year, after all the promise they've shown in the last two years, and then next year there's a, a, a run of three winless games or something early on, 
all of a sudden, I'm not sure he's going to have the credit in the bank and the stock built up and like the support of the fans and the whole aura around him to be able to survive it like he would now. If they lost three on the bounce, he wouldn't get sacked. But if if there's they tossed the league out last season when they were 10 points clear, they've been top this season and are now fourth and at the FA Cup. Presuming they go on to win nothing this season, they won't sack him in the summer, but he will be under immense pressure to kick on and win lots and lots of games early next season. And if not, I don't think they'll have the patience that maybe they would have done this year or last year. Also, that kind of qualifying for Champs League uh, is a success, was kind of the the end of the Wenger reign, wasn't it? And what Arsenal fans started to get annoyed with, where kind of finishing top four was just seen as a successful season. Like, Arsenal fans want to be winning trophies. um, And I don't think they have now in, what, four years? It's like 1,200 and seven days in it since they last lifted a trophy. So... Yeah, I think he will be under a fair bit of pressure uh, if he doesn't get something this season. Uh, one one other game just to mention, boys. Southampton 4, Warsaw nil. So no uh, upset there and movement of the Premier Pod Cup. Uh, a, comp- a part that we added to the pod thinking that the Cup would uh, move down the different leagues and go through different teams and we could deep dive into each of those teams. But since we introduced it, Russell Martin's decided to go unbeaten now in... About 11 12 games, so like 19, us, 19. Like, yeah, so like most of our segments that we introduced to this pod, uh, it's been scuffed a bit. So, yeah, <laughs> if Southampton could uh could look to uh to drop some points soon in the league, uh, preferably a loss, then that would be much appreciated for the sake of the Premier Pod Cup. But no, massive shout out to Russell Martin and Southampton, uh, doing a great job in the league and obviously through comfortably to the next round of the FA Cup. Boys, let's get into it a little bit then about um, the kind of current state of the FA Cup competition. So we did a poll earlier uh, on Twitter uh, or X, basically saying that we'd be looking in depth for the FA Cup after the third round fixtures this weekend. If you could change one thing about the FA Cup, what would it be? And we gave four options, one being seeded draws, one being no replays with extra time and pens in the in the kind of initial fixture, better TV game choices, or other with allowing people to comment. And we'll we'll go through some of the other bits that people have suggested at the end, but we'll go into those initial three in detail. 52% of the vote, uh, and we had just over 1,600 votes so far, was for no replays and the ties to go straight to extra time and penalties. Just want to get your boys' views uh, on that. Lauro, start with you. Do you think replays should be scrapped or do you think they're important for the competition? Uh, Well, it depends who's answering that question, doesn't it? If it's a lower league team that's got a draw against the big side, they probably want the replays. But in general, um, probably no replays and straight to pens. But the fact that 1,600 people have voted on that and over half of them have said no replays um, straight to extra time and penalties shows that that's fans voting on that. They just want to see less of the FA Cup. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? As football fans, you should want another game. So I think that's a reflection of the sort of outlook on the FA Cup in this country now and the sort of lack of prestige as I mentioned earlier that that rides on it once upon a time it was you know just as big as the league to win the FA Cup I think back in maybe the 70s 80s 90s even um but now it's kind of like a um it's sort of falling down the same route the league cup has and it's a little bit of a chore isn't it and particularly like I said earlier when you've got Premier League teams going in risking their players and then having them banned for free games it's um yeah it's only going one way unless they add an incentive in my opinion to make it more motivational to win games. 
Yeah, indeed. And you just touched on there about the Calvert-Lewin. Also had uh, Jared Bowen went down as well uh, late in the Bristol City West Ham game. So I don't know if he started that game or came off the bench. But um, again, sort of injuries to key players like that in the FA Cup uh, would would probably hamper uh, managers' thoughts on the importance of that. Tomo? I think there's a very simple solution to um, to the replays thing. And um, it was pointed out by a Twitter user, SibsMUFC. I think I sent it to you boys on WhatsApp. And it was, when it comes to replays, you should simply leave it up to both teams to decide. So when you're looking at Brentford versus Wolves and they yeah. drew... Both of those are in the Prem. They definitely don't want to replay. Everton and Crystal Palace, both of them in the Prem, definitely don't want to replay. All of those teams don't need the money because they're all Premier League teams. When you look at lower league clubs, say, for instance, if a, a League Two club draws against Crystal Palace, of course they're going to want the replay because of the money. that It would probably be on TV, um, especially if it's a replay. So they get extra money. Then that makes sense. But there's no indication or there's never been any discussion that those sort of talks could happen where where <clears throat> teams could decide their own fate, if you will. Um, and obviously both teams would have to agree because obviously if, if you're Man United tonight and you go and draw against Wigan, you probably don't want to replay. You probably want to get it done tonight. Um, so what would happen there if Wigan wanted to replay and United didn't? Well, it w- you'd have to have a replay. because right. So the only way that it wouldn't go to replay is if two teams decided that yeah. they want it done on the day. I know, and that has to, obviously that decision has to be made beforehand. You can't yeah. make it sort of at full time and then it's like, okay, we'll go to extra time and penalties. <laughs> well, there was a, a manager earlier, the Blackpool manager, said that uh, he basically, clubs at that level are trying to go down the same route as what Luton are doing and get to the Prem. Now, for them to do that, they need finances. And to get those finances, replays and FA Cup runs and getting onto TV and replays and getting half the gate. So if you're at home as a a, a team and you've got a smaller stadium, you do half the gate goes to the home and the away side in the FA Cup in every tie. But if you draw a big team at home, like Arsenal, Arsenal will sometimes waive their right to have half of the gate at uh, if they're playing Blackpool Bloomfield Road and let the home team keep it. If Blackpool get a one-all draw and then go to the Emirates and it's 60,000 people, Blackpool then get half of that gate as well. And he was basically saying that they are absolutely reliant on that money and therefore replays are a big part for them. And so that's why sometimes chairmans prefer draws and replays back at an, a bigger wayside than winning that round and then potentially just going out someone in the same league as them the next round. So they think that replays are absolutely fundamental. And he basically, his point was that entitled big teams should stop moaning about the amount of games that they get to play because it's way harder down in the lower leagues for, for teams. So he, uh, probably a he, fair point there. He is spot on, but that also doesn't take away from the, like my point is that... Yeah. Prems face each other and they don't want to play a replay. No problem. No one wants to watch that replay. No one wants to watch Brentford Wolves. No one wants to watch Everton Crystal Palace. But if Blackpool played Arsenal, like you just said, we don't want to watch that. So there, there is a best of both worlds that we could do if we all just got our heads together and fucking... It's, it's, it seems silly, really. Ooh, Tomo, they, another point on that. So stepping away from the replays 
slightly. I think that another bugbear of people is that you're seeing games like Everton Palace. You're seeing games like uh, Tottenham Burnley. Obviously, Wolves Brentford uh, wasn't televised, but we're, you're seeing quite a lot of Arsenal Liverpool of all Premier League ties in the third round. And I think Jeff Stelling on TalkSport um, on one of his first shows was talking about when the draw was first made. Why don't we seed the draw? So I think there's 64 teams left in the competition now. So effectively, you'd have the top 32 ranked sides, probably based on all Prem sides, and then the the highest remaining league position sides from Championship and League One, if we got far, that far down. And then the other 32 sides where you got your teams like Maidstones, who've then got a bigger chance of rather than getting Stevenage, where they could have just gone out after going through a qualifying round, a first round, a second round, just gone to Stevenage away when they'd hoped for a big tie, gone out and that's their FA Cup journey to then give them a better opportunity to get a big tie. But also you're not seeing these all Premier League ties as well. Do you think there's any substance in that as an idea? The, the only thing, look, there is definitely substance in it, but I'm... I'm a bit torn because I just like the idea of a draw being completely random. And and at the end of the day, when a draw is completely random, you will get ties that are shit. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because that's just the nature of the beast. The problem, the problem with, say, the Everton Palace game was they decided to put that on TV. Like, who wanted to watch that? Why not put Maidstone-Stevenage on TV? And I know it's not like a glamorous tie, but Maidstone a non-league side and they're at home. That would be like, that'd be, that'd be a great tie to put on TV. But look, I don't know. I, I do get that point. And I do think that the greater likelihood of the teams like Maidstone getting teams in the Premier League and therefore potentially getting a big, um, a big gate at home, obviously they'd get a full ground or if they were away to the big Premier League teams, they'd get half the, the gate receipts and that would um, be brilliant for their finances as well. So, I can see both sides of the argument, but when it comes to when it comes to draws, draws are draws for a reason, and and they're random, and you sometimes get good draws, sometimes shit. This third round has seemed to be a bit shit, but has thrown up a couple of good fixtures, like the Sunderland Newcastle one, Arsenal Liverpool. Although we don't really want to see it again and again and again, it's still a big game. I'm sure. I think it was on BBC, wasn't it? I'm sure they they got big numbers for it. So it's it's a tough yeah. one. And Neil Critchley's the Blackpool manager, by the way. Um, the old Stephen you, but, um, yeah, with the, I mean, just remember that the FA Cup is somewhat seeded anyway. The Prem teams don't even come into the third round. Um, so you, if you get to the third round, that's your big chance of getting a big team. But I just, you don't want the competition becoming like a gimmick where it's just the same. You know, for instance, as a Yeovil fan, in the last 20 years at home, we've had three absolutely mo monster ties. Man United twice and Liverpool. And they're like massive historic games. And they're so big because you only get them once in a blue moon. And the draw is so good because you could end up getting Lincoln away, but you might get Liverpool at home or Man United at home. And I agree. I think it's the luck of the draw. And that's why it's so monumentous. And I think... If you had every single conference team playing every single Premier League team every third round, that might lose its charm a little bit. Maybe not. Definitely a point about the finances, of course. It'd be brilliant for the lower league teams every third round to get a monster gate and send them on their way. But I actually don't think that um, making the FA Cup more of a desirable competition to do well in it should be seeding it at the third round to make sure there's big and little ties all across the board. I think it's more about incentivizing the end of it um, to make it more of a um, 
jeopardized competition if you you know if a big team gets knocked out that's one chance of going at the champions league for instance if we were to say the winner gets a champions league spot at the end of it um i don't think there's a lot wrong with how it works right now whatever you do there's going to be stinking ties i mean e- even if you seeded it in the third round it, someone's got to have a crap game do you know what i mean not everyone can play man united yeah. do you know what i mean what about the league one teams they might not want to play fucking tottenham they might want to go further they might want to play port vale or they might want to play Stevenage and try and get through again. So I don't know if, like I said, um, re-kind of calibrating how the third round works is the way. Although I see definitely see the point for the very small teams, for sure. Laura, you made a really good point there. Um, I do think the only way to get Premier League teams to take the, the FA Cup more seriously is to incentivise the winner. for, and, and this would work if if England get a fifth Champions League spot as well, because you would get top four going through to the Champions League and then the fifth spot going to the FA Cup winner. And obviously it would the fifth spot would just become the fifth the fifth team in the in the league if obviously the top four, if the winner of the FA Cup comes from the top four. So yeah. and imagine, say for instance, like your Brentford's of this world, Everton's, West Ham's, all of these top like Brighton's everyone would take the competition so so much more seriously because it's a great opportunity to change your club's history forever by qualifying for the Champions League. And I think that's the only way to save it. I've not thought about all of the ins and outs of potentially let's let's say for instance, what was it 10 years ago Wigan won won the FA Cup and got relegated in the same season. So would you have a championship team playing in the Champions League? And with the schedules and stuff, that doesn't mesh because Champions League fixtures and Championship fixtures play on the same night. But so I haven't really thought of all of it through, but I do think that's a good way of bringing the prestige back to the FA Cup. Yeah, I mean, the the only other thing you could do with it, which again might might be a bit of nuances if they were in the EFL, is that they go into a European competition. So Champs League's Tuesday, Wednesday nights. But if you're in a if a championship side won it or a Premier League side that got relegated, maybe they could go into Europa or we've got the conference league now even. Could you make it like a conference league spot rather than someone who finishes seventh or eighth in the Premier League? Like surely there's more no one, no one wants to go in the conference league, though. Mark. No, no, no. If you're if you're if you're an EFL club and you win the FA Cup, you can sell your Champions League spot for ten million quid to a Prem team. Bosh. <laughs> yeah, don't you mean a hundred million? Because yeah, that's, that's whatever, how much, whatever, whatever. That's how much know. you get for going in the Champions League is about hundred million or something ridiculous, eighty-two million. So well, there, you, there you go then. Yeah. There's got to be some some sort of incentive to make people take it seriously again, because all people care about is the league, don't they? Unless you're in the Champions League, and that holds very high rewards, and that's why teams take that seriously too. But we've had it for the, with the League Cup for a long time. You know, it's also known as the Mickey Mouse Cup, isn't it? Um, and that's why it's a little bit embarrassing when the likes of United to celebrate winning it these days. But the FA Cup's going in the same direction. It's sad to see. So. Yeah, I agree with that. I think Champions League spot for the winner, unless they're in the EFL and then they get some kind of massive financial reimbursement. That'd be good. Because let's be honest, the cha- if you're in the Championship, you, you don't need any more incentive to win the FA Cup. You want to win that anyway. It's just it's pretty much impossible. Yeah, indeed. And the, the third 
part of the poll uh, and Tommy, you alluded to it with the games that were on TV, but is for better televised fixtures uh, for the game. So like would Maidstone Stevenage have been a, a better FA Cup tie for for viewers than Everton Palace? Like certainly as a neutral, you'd probably prefer to watch uh, Maidstone Stevenage, like because you don't get to watch those sides very often. But would it for BBC or ITV make sense for them to do that? And one idea that I saw um, that someone had commented on our, our poll was that would someone like an Amazon, you know, like where they have their weekends where they show all Prem games, would it be lucrative for them to take, right, we're going to be the streaming service of the FA Cup. So we will own all FA Cup game rights right through to the final where you get the massive millions of viewerships, but you can go in and watch any game. So all of the games that are on in the FA Cup, you could go on and select the one you wanted to watch it. And then everyone gets a piece of the uh, prize money, depending on how many times they're on the t or on the stream based on how many rounds they get through. I don't, I don't know how to solve the sort of that really. I, 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 I like the idea of free to air FA Cup football, like BBC and ITV have got it. I really do like that. I think it was on BT Sport for a couple of years and it was crap. Um, the only thing I will say is, like, Everton Crystal Palace was on ITV4. Yesterday, Man City Huddersfield was on the iPlayer, BBC iPlayer. It's like, how if these, if these TV channels aren't taking the FA Cup seriously, how can they expect um, the viewer to take it seriously? Do you know what I mean? And... Sky Sports gets a lot of stick, but they take the Premier League so seriously. Like, half an hour build-up at least, at the very least, for Crystal Palace versus Everton. Do you know what I mean? Whereas, I think there was a game on... I think it was Aston Villa-Middlesbrough. There was a five-minute five yeah. minute build-up to the game. And that's a big that's a big fixture. And it's like, if these if these companies aren't taking it seriously, how do they expect the viewer to take it seriously? And then how do they take how do they expect sponsors to take it seriously? And it, and it all sort of rolls into one where it becomes a, a less prestigious event. And and the FA Cup was the most prestigious event back in the day because they had it was one of the only TV game or, or one of the only games on TV and. It wasn't just a game that was on TV. It was the run-up. They had they had the the cameras um, on the buses leading up to the, to Wembley and all of that stuff and all the fans etc. Whereas now it's like they treat it like a second-class competition, and us fans treat it like a second-class competition. Whereas the broadcast the broadcasters, in my opinion, should lead the way. And I, and I, I know you're going to jump in here, and I'm sure you you'll make some good points, but. I think it's an utter disgrace that they they chose Palace versus Everton as a TV game. And I think it's an utter disgrace they chose Burnley Tottenham. Um, Man United, they're on TV tonight for the 86th time in a row in the FA Cup. Because obviously, but but that sort of decision, you can kind of understand because Man United are the biggest club in the, in the league and they will always gain the biggest viewers. But some of the other decisions are really questionable. I think some of what you've just said is some of the, the most sensible, well thought out stuff I've ever heard come out of your mouth. And like any any product, the Premier League is a product, isn't it? That is worth billions, right? And like you say, they promote it. They stick it in front of their customers' noses for hours and hours and hours on end with adverts and um, background programming and 
um, all the rest of it, and creating a narrative and a story to excite and get the viewers to buy into it. And like you say, they're not doing it with the FA Cup. The Aston Villa Middlesbrough kicks off at hour five, and they're turning on the um, coverage at twenty five past five. Like you say, they're not bothering with it. They're not taking it seriously, and you can't expect anything to grow and get better if you're being lazy with it. So, of course, if Man United is going to get the most viewership, stick them on every round, no problem at all. I don't mind, like you just said, Man City Huddersfield was on ITV four. Maybe they think there's lots of fans that will watch that. Stick on ITV four, but ITV one, BBC, whoever have got the coverage on the main channels that they know are going to get millions of viewers, whatever. You need to capitalise on that and build it and get people to buy into it and get excited about the FA Cup again. And you're not going to do that with five minutes before the kickoff. We need adverts. We need upset of the round. We need lots building into it. We need pundits speaking about it excitedly for 45 minutes, half an hour before the game. And, you know, fans coming on and speaking about what it means to them and all this sort of stuff just to drive the excitement and the narrative into the public. Because if you're on terrestrial television, you're halfway there because millions of people will watch it anyway. But you need to build on that. You can't be lazy with it. Like they do in the Premier League, they're not doing it with the FA Cup. Very good point, well made. And I think that's probably half the issue. Yeah, indeed. And I, I think that um, there's something that will need to be uh, to be looked at for that. I think that um, a few different ideas. So we had some comments on people from what they should do. So a couple of people said about making it kind of the pinnacle of the season, making sure it's the last game of the season. I think in a couple of recent years, there's been there's been kind of other games that have followed that and it should be kind of the crown jewel of the, the domestic season. Uh, someone actually picked up on TV coverage. This might be a bit extreme, but they said make it a 3 p.m. kickoff for the final and TV coverage starts at 10 a.m. Five hour shift before the game might be a bit uh, difficult for the. Yeah, that's, that's what they used to do. That's what they used to do. Yeah, I guess you make it more if it's at Wembley, you make it more of a day then. You know, you've got you've got a full day of almost the FA Cups, like a whole event with different things happening. But that was you know, like you know, like the Super Bowl in America, and they've got like yeah. the big like artist at halftime. That is to draw audience and excitement and anticipation and more eyes on an event. Do you know what I mean? So not only are you getting every football fan or Super Bowl fan, um, NFL fan watching it, you get in every Taylor Swift fan or every Rihanna fan. And then that breeds more eyes onto the sport and you're more likely to pick up more fans and you're more likely to grow the product. And then it ends up being a monster. Do you know what I mean? So I'm not saying we need Rihanna at halftime, the FA Cup final, but if you are going to have an idea of five-hour build-up coverage, I'm sure there's stuff that they can do in instalments that people can get on board with and buy into and watch and help grow. Um, I haven't got the answers for it, um, but someone must have out there. So, yeah, well, like you say, maybe an Amazon. Someone, someone just pick look, it up and run with it. Look what the Hearns have done with darts, and look what they've yeah. done with boxing. Like you don't need to, yeah. you don't need to sing "Sweet Caroline," but they do it anyway because of the atmosphere, etc. And the darts, like you don't need fancy dress, but they do it anyway because of like it's a massive TV product. And what was there? Three point eight million viewers of that darts final. I know. Luke Littler was a big reason for that, and he's the fact he's 16, etc. But it's because of the way they treat their product. If they yeah. treat it, they treat it so importantly that it's like, well, it's a must-see event. But yeah, yeah anyway. This is exactly what you what the point that you made, this promotion, isn't it? And like you talk about Luke Littler. By the way, that darts coverage, Eddie Hearn tweeted saying it's the most viewed sport ever on Sky now, other than football. It was more people watched that than the Ashes, more people watched it than the Ryder Cup. And it's because of the promotion, like you like you say. And you say this year it's because of Luke Littner, but there's always a story. 
Maidstone of the story in the FA Cup. Do you know what I mean? Another year it might be having a Waterlooville playing Liverpool like they did a few years ago. Do you know what I mean? There's always a story. You've just got to drive it and yeah. shove it in people's faces. Do you know what I mean? Haven't a Waterlooville have won again. Luke Litter's won again. It's the same thing. And get more and more people watching it and promote it. And that's the essence behind building any product, isn't it? But particularly in sport, like we're talking about now. The Ryder Cup, the darts, the ashes, those sort of things, they are in short spaces of time and there's no other fixtures in between. Whereas for the FA Cup to be kind of have that bit for it, you'd almost need the domestic season to finish and then the FA Cup to start. So it's like almost like your first round is in May. And then you, you, do you know what I mean? Like the darts is two weeks over Christmas, isn't it? So if that was spaced out where it was like the first round of the World Darts Championships in August and your unseeded players are playing and then your big dogs, your Peter Wright, your Gerwin Prices, your Michael Smith's come in in the third round in January and then Luke Littler's gone and upset someone, but we're not going to see them again until February. It probably would have that build up, would it? It's almost like if you wanted that for the FA Cup, you'd need to have that as a competition like the Euros FA uh, Euros World Cup. We're mainly talking about a third round here, though, where the big boys go into the third round and the teams like Maidstone have got that carrot of a big reward and a big draw. And that is that is the excitement of the FA Cup for football fans all around the UK or all around England. Um, and on all levels, in all levels, like Murph, you play in it. Do you know what I mean? That's what it's all about. It brings all levels of football together. Um, I don't think that's a good idea, like what you just said there, because then it becomes, well, it's just too, too big a competition. No, to it, do that. It, it, would, it wouldn't happen like that. I'm just saying that's how that kind of like yeah. snowballs with the darts. But like like I think like Tigo said, you talk about the third round. The, I think the final of the FA Cup, it's probably still massive, isn't it? Once yeah. you get to the final, like last year, it was the Manchester derby. It was fucking huge. Same yeah. with the League Cup. I remember when Man U played Newcastle last year in the League Cup final. It was massive, wasn't it? What By the time you get to the final, people are interested then. And I expect that still gets massive figures. But the FA Cup competition as a whole needs help to get back up the ladder in terms of prestige and excitement and, and relevance, really. And uh, the third round is obviously the big kind of pinnacle of that, isn't it? where minnows can play big teams and stuff like that. And it just needs to be given more time, in, in my opinion. And, and like you say, Darts, Ashes, Ryder Cup, they're one-offs over short spaces of time. But they've also got far less fans in this country as football has. Do you know what I mean? There's millions and millions and millions of more people that will watch football in this country because we're a football nation. So we need to buy into it and utilise it rather than five minutes lead up to Middlesbrough Villa. Yeah, I think there were suggestions about the FA Cup final being like the Super Bowl uh, before, but there was someone tweeted basically saying, imagine being 2-0 down at halftime in the FA Cup final and H and Central C come on for 15 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> so, but yeah, no, potentially something there to be done with making that more of an event, but you are right that by the time the final's there, everyone's at the pub for it that day or like together, aren't they, for the day? It's more about the third and fourth round and how we... Uh, but, do you know, can I just say one more thing? Even uh, particularly the third round, the draw. At the moment, right, we have probably Joby McEnough and Alex Scott picking balls out of a hat on BBC, on ITV for five minutes. Why isn't it like a massive event, big draft, someone from each club sat around a table? Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. fucking videos of fans flying everywhere when they've drawn Man United at home. Do you know what I mean? Make an hour-long programme out of that. Rather yeah. than five minutes at 3.55 on ITV. Do you know what I mean? Just sort of like...
brainstorming here, but there's so much more that could be done. But it's just lazy, isn't it? We've got Mark Chapman speaking to two pros that retired five years ago, picking draws out of a hat and going, oh, that's a big tie when Sunderland get Newcastle or Maidstone get a big team. Do you know what I mean? That can more can be done at every little facet if effort is put in, which for some reason it's not. Well, I don't want to speak on behalf of you both, but I'm sure you'll both be keen. Here's a offer from the Pyramid podcast to come and do some consultancy and let's get the FA Cup back alive and kicking. So, uh, yeah. One final tie tonight, Tomo, uh, in the third round. Uh, Wigan versus Man United, uh, a game that Eric Ten Hag can't afford to uh, slip up in, but surely United are going to progress with hopefully not too much uh, issue tonight. Well, that's that's not really a good question, is it? Because we don't know. We've been terrible all season. Wigan are in League One. They are struggling, um, but they are at home. It's not a long journey. It is a bit of a derby, to be fair. So um, it'd be interesting to see what happens if Man United lose. Um, I don't want it to happen, obviously, but if Man United lose against Wigan after the season that Ten Hag's had, I'll, I'll find it very hard to see if he can keep his job, to be honest. Um, but... So Jim Ratcliffe's ownership takeover, 25% of it. Um, I think it takes six weeks to ratify um, from the Premier League. So I don't know if they'll make that decision yet, even if we get even if we get knocked out. But look, oh God, I, I, you, I'm getting a bit nervous now, to be honest. I know we've got a couple hours away, but Jesus, I can't imagine getting knocked out tonight. Oh. As Man United fans... Would you rather win the FA Cup and finish sixth in the league this season? Yes. Or or no FA Cup, but you're fourth. Yes, a hundred percent. I could not. Yeah, one. Why why do we want to qualify for the Champions League when you've just seen what we did in the Champions League? We're no way near near it. I'd rather play Thursday night football um, next year and win an FA Cup and have a chance to go to Wembley, have a great day out, all of that. Do you know what I mean? There's, I don't think that should be. I mean, it is a good question, but I don't think it should be a good debate. No, I think that's it. I'm glad you said that. Obviously, the flip side of it is if you're in the Champions League, you can, I mean, you should be able to attract a higher calibre of player, but Man United seem to sign poor players regardless where they finish <laughs> and what competitions they're in. So I suppose that doesn't really apply to you. Yeah, and we, we absolutely agonised over top four last year like Liverpool started turning it on late in the season and you're like finally we kind of got over the line ended up doing it fairly comfortably but then you come bottom of your group and you're out of Europe so it's, it's a bit different for United though isn't it like for Newcastle get into the Champions League and getting to play AC Milan away Dortmund away you know PSG even though they've come bottom or where do they come third or fourth they're out isn't they yeah they had those big nights and they hadn't had them in 20 years so it's still well well worth it. They would have taken that probably over the FA Cup, mate. I don't know, maybe. But Man United, who have been there and done it, won the Champions League. It's a little bit more depressing now, just qualifying to get rolled by Galatasaray and Bajikdas or whoever it was. Yeah. It's a, finan- it's a financial thing, isn't it? Because I think in our Adidas deal, we've got... Um, we get penalised in that sponsorship deal if we're not in the Champions League. So they pay us 80 million a year or whatever it is, but they'll only pay us 50 million a year if we're not in the Champions League. So it all kind of rolls on to one. Um, 
But as fans, you want a trophy. And it, you just want to win things. There's four there's four trophies to win in the pre- if you're in the Prem or if you're in Europe every year. It's difficult to win things. So you just want to win things. Yeah, FA Cup's always amazing to to win as well, isn't it? So when you get to the final, but um, yeah. So yeah, we will see that. And then just finally, one final point. We can't really go on without talking about it, Laura. Uh, just a word on Patrick Bamford's uh, goal in the FA Cup. We posted it on social media. Someone who's had a bit of a hard time of it over the last kind of 12 to 18 months in a lead shirt. Um, but what a goal. Yeah, it's just... <laughs> Without putting a dampen on it, it's a shame it was like the second in a win over Peterborough in the FA Cup, isn't it? Like it would have been if it was something that was in the league and it was a big game and it meant something, it would have been a lot more for Pat. But that is two in two for him back in the side. But it just out of context, the goal's unbelievable, isn't it? The technique yeah. and the, the finish, it was kind of a hybrid between like what Drogba and Adebayor did once or twice between them in the Premier League and even that Henri goal against United where he sort of um, had his back to go and turned the volley a little bit, not on his chest. So I think he's left footed as well and it's sort of gone over the keeper and into the stanchion of the goal. Unbelievable finish from a player who's got it in the locker but seems to have been short of confidence in the last fucking three years. But hopefully that will see him um, back to form. Amazing what a goal does as well, isn't it? Because if he hadn't scored in his last game, there's no way he's chesting that up in the air and hitting it first time on the swivel, left footed top bins. It's just... Mad what that does for a striker. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a uh, reaction. It was like a non-thinking about it yeah. goal, wasn't it? He just, everything was in one motion. And that shows you what calibre of player he is. He's naturally doing that, not thinking about it. Po- probably the fact we're playing Peterborough comes into it. If we're playing against League One opposition, we're winning the game, we're probably going to go through. And he thinks, fuck it. And it just shows you what freedom can do for a player, particularly a striker who's not been at the races for a while. And he's not been at the races for a long time. Um, off the back of the goal last week, like you say as well. Confidence is a massive thing for strikers, isn't it? Particularly Patrick Manford. And uh, look, they dropped Piro for him at the weekend, uh, the weekend before in the league. So he's obviously doing bits in training. So, and I think he's still only about 30, Patrick Manford. He's probably still got a good few years left, particularly, in the, I mean, particularly in the championship. He should be a really good player. He was only playing for England last year or the year before. So let's see how it goes for him. But yeah, that goal was absolutely astonishing. Right up there with goal of the season already, I would say, with Garnacho. I was just going to ask that in a word, and only one word, Bamford or Garnacho? Garnacho. Bamford. I suppose a Man United and a Leeds fan. Right, boys, we'll move on. And a bit of managerial news. And, Lauro, um, you had your uh, Birmingham clip on uh on x that uh got a fair few interactions on it and you spoke about the kind of decision to a bring rooney in but then b go on to sack him before the transfer window and they obviously wanted this style of play but they seem to have about turned and now they've signed tony mowbray on a two and a half year deal just uh your thoughts on that as a uh appointment for birmingham uh, well, there's two sides to this. One is that Tony Mowbray is a really good appointment for Birmingham. He's a brilliant championship manager, never should have got sacked at Sunderland, has done really good work at most clubs that he's been at, and he will be a good appointment. So in that sense, very good. But it also shows the lack of any kind of strategy from Birmingham, doesn't it? Because they've got rid of John Eustace, then they brought in Wayne Rooney, and then they've gone for a polar opposite manager in Tony Mowbray. So what's the game plan there? 
unless they're thinking they're in such trouble, they just need to appoint someone to keep them up this year, which Tony Mowbray will 100% do, but they put them on a 2.5 year deal. So it's just scattergun and sort of breeds on from what I was saying on Birmingham's um, decision makers last week, that they don't really know what they're doing yet. And that's okay. Maybe they're new to it and they're figuring it out and they're making mistakes and hopefully it won't cost them championship status. It shouldn't now with Tony Mowbray. Maybe they know they're a little bit silly with what they did with John Eustace and they're um, sort of licking their wounds and learning from it and going again with a proper manager. And that's fine. So let's see what they do now. But let's not see Tony Mowbray get sacked like he was at Sunderland for being sixth, by the way, or somewhere around there for another ridiculous appointment six months down the line. So the proof will be in the pudding. But on the face of it, Tony Mowbray is a brilliant appointment for Birmingham. Should still be at Sunderland. Yeah, indeed. Uh, I I agree with that completely. I don't think he should have uh, been sacked from uh, Sunderland or left Sunderland. And I think a, a really clever appointment for Birmingham now. I think what's an interesting point you've made there is, is it someone to steady the ship and keep them up? Almost like a Prem club wheels out every sort of season, brings in Big Sam, try and kind of keep us up and then we'll... Uh, We'll move on again, but I I think Tony Mowbray is uh, too good a manager at championship level for that, and I think they'll be thinking more if he's got Sunderland into the playoffs. Can he start moving us back up through uh through that part of the table, so uh, up towards the top? So yeah, let's see how that one pans out. But um yeah, that Rooney, what a disaster! Well, the the biggest line from um the owner and the announcement, he basically says he shares our ambition. And will bring stability at an important time for our great club. And that's the words, isn't it? Stability. They yeah. they had stability in John Eustace. They threw it up in the air, tore it all up. And Rooney's come in with a wrecking ball and struggled. And now, now they've sort of got no choice but to lick their wounds and go back to a seasoned um, veteran in, in Mowbray. What I will say, just quickly, I know... I know they are new owners and they're American and they can get things wrong, etc. But their CEO is Gary Cook, the former Man City CEO. There's He has no excuse. And he's the guy, I guess, in charge of the football operation. So... He can't be. Yeah, well, he's, he's, he, he can't be the decision-maker, can he? Well, yeah, maybe an, right, an, experience, but... an experienced mind in the English football game can't have made that decision because literally 99.9% of everyone knew as soon as he appointed Wayne Rooney and sat used to this that it was fucking ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. So I wonder if they know what they're getting in Mowbray as well because it, it, it's probably easy to think of Tony Mowbray as being like a Neil Warnock and someone that just sort of like pragmatically gets you know, results. He's not, he's a bit of a, they play football, Sunderland, with like Jack Clark and Patrick Roberts, Joe Bellingham bringing through young players. They played really good expansive football. Some of the goals that they scored are like proper footballing yeah. goals, like the beautiful game type thing. So just because he's like a little bit older Tony Mowbray and he's a Northern English bloke, doesn't mean that he's not part of the new school as well, can implement some new ideas. So it's a really good appointment and it's not like appointing Big Sam in the Prem, he'll try and play football at Birmingham if he's got the players. And they have got some decent players there. They need to be utilised properly by a proper championship manager. Um, they had one and now they've got one again. So let's see how it goes. Yeah, as I just said, um, he'll, def he'll definitely be looking at moving them up through the table, uh, Tony Mowbray. And so, yeah, it. I, I wonder whether the CEO of Birmingham kind of got uh, overruled with the Rooney decision and the Americans have been like, we're going to bring in Wayne Rooney. He's a megastar. We're going to bring him back from America. And now the CEO has been like, right, 
look how that's gone. I told you not to get rid of Eustace. I told you not to happen. Let me have back control of the football club. And if you need, if you want me to stay as Birmingham CEO, this is how we're going to do it. I'm going to run football operations and I'll come for you for sign off, but you're not having a, a sort of a, an overarching say in, in those sort of decisions. So it might have been short-term pain for long-term gain for Birmingham with that uh, Rooney saga, because the owners might be like, actually, we should probably need to know a little bit more about football um, than than that, just to uh, make yeah, those sort of The story decisions. about John Eustace's sacking, just before we move on, was that he fell out with Gary Cook. Oh, okay. So it, uh, Cook was involved. But anyway, yeah, let's move on. Indeed. Uh, right, let's start to look, boys, at some of the transfer uh, bits that are happening um, in wider football in the January market. Laura, coming to you first, Timo Werner to Tottenham, coming on loan, viewed to a permanent, I think, 17 million euros option to uh, to buy in the summer, depending on how he, uh, how he does. But do you think that's a good bit of business for Tottenham? Do you think it's a, you know, with the worries that it's Chelsea form and not been getting much game time at Leipzig, it's a bad one? No, I trust Tottenham to do the right thing. I always think that clubs with good managers who coach the players properly don't just sign big-name players and expect them to perform. Sign players and actually implement a coaching strategy on them to improve them and help them um, play the way they want to play in their process through their philosophy. I trust them that they know the kind of players that they want. And I expect they've had a look at the sort of metrics and stats of Timo Werner and think it will fit Angie's... Um, way of playing quite nicely. So I actually have a soft spot for Timo Werner. I think he's an okay player. He's definitely got the pace. He's definitely got the directness. He was a terrible finisher at Chelsea, but Richarlison's been a terrible finisher for quite a long time, and he's quite a good player for Tottenham now as well. So um, I think that's more about, I think to myself, why are they making that signing? And Tottenham and the setup there have obviously looked at it and thought, we think we can utilise him. And for that reason, I think it could be quite a good, clever signing. Yeah, and I think United were linked with him as well. And you can kind of see if he'd gone to United, it would have been like a disastrous signing, not scored many goals, picked up his Chelsea form. But I think you said before, Laura, haven't you? It's like the job of managers and coaches is to coach players to be better. So, you know, a Werner that goes to Tottenham isn't necessarily the same player who goes to Man United because of the coaches and the... Uh, potential kind of improvements that a good coaching setup can make for him. So, yeah, I mean, on the face of it, not a great finisher, but cover for uh, Harry Kane's obviously gone. I'm not saying he's replacing Harry Kane, but Son's at the Asia Cup. They've probably got limited options in those forward positions if a couple of Son, Kulisevsky, Brennan Johnson get injured. So not a terrible signing on the face of it. No, you know, like when you look at Jadon Sancho and people always say, I guarantee if City had signed him, he'd have been a player. Well, yes, he would have been a player because Pep would have got hold of him and made him into the player that he wanted to fit his team and he'd have gone on. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and I think back on a lower scale to like, I always go back to it, but only because I know so much about it, like Bielsa at Leeds, the players that he turned in, like Luke Kalin, like Stuart Dallas, Calvin Phillips to some extent, Patrick Bamford, he got into an England squad, right? A guy that couldn't score a Premier League goal and was a championship striker all day long, but he coached them properly. Do you know what I mean? And improve them all as players. And that is such an underrated facet and asset of a manager these days. Do you know what I mean? It's not just being the head um, speaker and communicator. You've got to improve your players, whether that's you yourself or your coaching team around you. And Bielsa did it. Pep does it. I think Ange does it. And I think a complete contrast of that is Man United. Another conversation, but 
horses for courses, and certain players will do well under certain managers if they're coached properly. May I'm not saying Werner will at Tottenham, but I'm confident that they'd have looked at it and thought we can get something out of him. Yeah, it's a very good it's a very good career choice for Timo Werner if it is to be believed that his other choice was Man United on loan because I can tell you now that would have been an absolute disaster. The scrutiny, the pressure, everything is is tenfold when it comes to Man United compared to Tottenham and obviously the feeling around Tottenham at the minute is all positive. So I think if anyone can make Timo Werner a good Premier League player and a good finisher, it'll be Ange. So, um, sort of a no-brainer, really, when it's only a six-month loan as well. It's kind of risk-free. And he's also, quick, isn't he? One thing yeah. I remember about Werner is he's lightning. And you think about Tottenham and how they play, it's just room, isn't it? Direct, quick, pacey players moving all over the place, causing havoc. Maybe he can find a settled home there. Also, an important facet as a striker who's not a prolific finisher is that you need multiple chances to score. And at Tottenham, he might miss a couple, but he'll probably get that third and fourth chance and get on the score sheet. A United side that creates nothing, who then managed to somehow carve a chance out for Werner that he then missed, it would have been a disaster. It would have been no goals. It would have been no chances, no service. Uh, yeah, very much a, Tomo, a good point that a good career move for Werner. Laura, you mentioned, mentioned Sancho there. Nice segue into the next transfer story. Um, Tomo, looks like Jane and Sancho's off back to Dortmund. Still a few bits to be uh, fleshed out there. I think Dortmund wanted a option to buy, but United not so keen on that. And what I'm reading for that is that they're not sure about Eric Ten Hag's long-term future because Sancho could therefore finish his loan and outstay Ten Hag and then a new manager where he wouldn't have this argument between and could potentially be back into the squad. Is that your view of it? Yeah, but it, obviously it depends how much they want the option to buy to be for. Do you know what I mean? He could, he could, it could be 20 million and Man United will say, well, if he goes to you for six months, plays well, like you kind of expect Jadon Sancho to do because it's not like he needs to settle in really because it's... um. He obviously he played there for three years or four years and he was unbelievable there. So he'll probably just move into his old home, um, knows his way to the training ground, all of that stuff. Um, so I think you are right about the Ten Hag stuff because Ten Hag's future is a bit up in the air. And with the ownership changing hands and the footballing decisions changing hands, we don't know what will happen there. Um, but also I think it makes sense for Man United because... If Sancho goes and balls for Dortmund for the next six months and propels them up the Bundesliga, then his stock will go up. Well, I mean, it can't get any lower than it is, but it will go up and in turn his value will go up. So it's probably a sensible decision for, for United. Um, the worrying thing is, is it is dragging on a little bit. It's been there or thereabouts done for the last three or four days and it's dragging on. I, I, I hope for Sancho's sake that it doesn't fall through. Yeah, I think Dortmund would be a good place for him to go back to. I do think if that one doesn't go through, there will be another side who will come in for him. I think uh, Ratcliffe and Dave Brailsford will be pretty adamant that he goes out and either rediscovers form or gets his value up for going in the summer and one of those two things. I don't think they're going to allow him to sit training with the reserves on 350 quid a week and letting a season go by where we then need to ship him out for 10, 15 mil when what we paid for him, I think we still out owe quite a bit of money on him to Dortmund already. Yeah, that was a Freud I think a Freudian slip is is 
what you say, but it wasn't 350 quid a week he's on. He's on 350 <laughs> grand. Yeah, a little bit more than that. So, uh, so yeah. Um, and then just one final transfer bit uh, to talk about, uh, boys, is Jordan Henderson apparently already looking to leave Saudi because it's too hot in the desert. Uh, who'd have thought it? Um, wants to come back to the Prem, apparently. Uh, Jurgen Klopp's not not kind of offered anything on a return to Liverpool uh, when asked about it. But um, do you think Henderson's going to be coming back to the Prem and, and sort of thought that the money's not worth it there, Tomo? Um, it's hard to say, really. Is it that that ball is in Henderson's court because he's on seven hundred grand a week. So if he if he wants to come to the Premier, he'll have to take a massive pay cut. Um, someone like a Fulham kind of level, um, like Brighton have just gone and got James Milner. So you kind of expect that type of club um, for Henderson to come back in, into the Prem, but. I'm surprised, but I, I did a, a tweet today on Deadline Day Live and and um, a number of players are unhappy. Bobby Firmino um, apparently has been offered around to Premier League clubs. Karen Benzema has been unhappy. Um, that youngster who used to play for Celta Vigo, whose name escapes me. Gabby Vega. Yeah, apparently he's unhappy there. And it's kind of unsurprising, really, because the league is the... We all know the league's dead. And we all know playing in front of 800 fans isn't as good as playing in front of 60,000 fans. So um, it's not surprising. And, and also a big reason why they're unhappy apparently is because of some of the rights for women over there are quite extreme. And obviously, if you want to move your family over there and your wife, I don't know the ins and outs of things, but you might not even be able to live with your wife. Or say, for instance, if Jordan Henson's not married, I think he is. But if you're, if he's not married, he can't live with his partner because they're not married. Do you know what I mean? So there's there are personal reasons for all of this as well, um, which would make sense because if you can't live with your missus, of course you're going to be unhappy. Um, so yeah, but what what, it's, what is it's, he expecting? Like, so the reasons are he can't live with his missus because he's not married. The football isn't great we play in front of 800 fans and desert's too hot yeah, yeah but listen, listen. All of that before he went yeah but yeah, that's, exactly. that's all well and good that is all well and good but when someone's offering you 700 grand a week and you're on 150 grand a week at liverpool and there's no sign of getting a big new contract i i, I don't begrudge henderson at all for going out there and i don't think no, anyone should you. But, you just summed it up. It just shows that that money and that extra pay packet, particularly for someone who probably doesn't need any more money, um, it wasn't worth it, was it? Well, and the other thing that I like, I hope, I hope is a contributing factor to Henderson wanting to return to the Premier League or uh, European top league is the fact that I hope Gareth Southgate spoke to him and said, "Look, you've been in my last few squads, but you ain't coming to Euro 2024 with us, the favourites for the competition." The three Lions, who have players like Harry Kane and Joe Bellingham ripping up the Champions League, if you are playing in front of 800 fans against nobodies in Saudi Arabia. That's why I hope has happened. And yeah. it should have happened. And that will prove will be in the pudding. I agree. Someone like Fulham, maybe a Wolves, maybe even like an Aston Villa will bring him in and add him into that midfield. Um, a bit of know-how as they charge towards the title. You never know. 
But a Premier League club, get Jordan Henderson back playing. And then if he's still the same player he was last season, which I'm sure he will be after only a couple of months away, I'll be more than happy for him to come and watch us win the Euros. <laughs> yeah. Leaving for play. We, yeah, mate, in the midfield that's struggling for, for options and probably a, a body or two light um, at the minute, he probably would get game time. So, well, yeah. do, do you reckon, we, we speak about this all the time, who is going to play next to Declan? We're going to play Bellingham, Rice and someone, aren't we? We're then Saka, a left winger and Kane. Maybe Southgate's rang him and said, look, we need you to play here, Henderson. No one else is coming through. He, he doesn't rate Ward Prowse. Phillips haven't played in five years. Jordan, you will start at the Euros, but you need to come back to England, mate. Or you need to go to La Liga or Liga or Bundesliga, something like that. Any danger. And then all this is coming out. Hopefully that's what's happened. Yeah, I mean, if that is the case, then he could potentially look at a loan option, though. Couldn't he come play the second half of that? Yeah, he's not going to be in the next World Cup, is he? He'd be no. too old. So, exactly. A loan, fine. But something to help England, brilliant. All for it. Yeah. Um. And one final bit of transfer news is that Jesse Lingard's offered himself to Barcelona, <laughs> which I imagine would go the same way as me offering myself to Dua Lipa. Um, neither of us would hear back. But yeah, uh, good to see Jesse pop up and, you know, aim for the job that you want, they do say. So fair play. Boys, let's move on to the uh, the football league action from the weekend. So, uh, Tomo, you spoke about Portsmouth. Uh, and Colby Bishop scored a goal and it seemed that there was muted uh, celebrations and the Portsmouth fans have been getting on at them a bit uh, and all not looking well. They went to Cheltenham, obviously, in the relegation zones and lost 2-1. Yeah, massive win for Cheltenham, who I think you said before that we started the pod are now only three points off safety. And um, their manager, Daryl Clark's obviously done a brilliant job since he's gone in there. And he, he said after the game, it was their biggest win of the season. Um, and rightly so, obviously, if you if you go and beat Portsmouth. But yeah, signs that all's not well in the Pompey camp and that blip continues. Um, that's a really bad result, isn't it? A really, really bad result and a worrying result. And now Bolton have got two games in hand um, with and only two points to make up. So yeah, look, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, how that blip plays out because... Like Loro's mentioned quite on a number of occasions, their manager, Massinho's, he was playing last year, so he's brand new to all of this. So this will be his first blip in management. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how they deal with it. Um, but credit where credit's due, fantastic result for Cheltenham. And after the start to the season they had, where they didn't score in their first 12 league games, or think 12 games, um, it would be fantastic and it would be a fantastic story if they um, stayed up. Yeah, when we're talking on the podcast where we're just wanting them to score a goal and we're bantering them because their only goal of the season is an own goal in the Papa John's Trophy, to now be five points off the bottom and three points from escaping the relegation zone, uh, what a job uh, Daryl Clark's doing there. And then just one other result to to look at, Loro, uh, Fleetwood won, uh, who do sit rock bottom. Uh, played Derby, uh, who scored three goals, 3-1 Derby. They're now two points off the automatics, four points off Portsmouth with a game in hands, looking a lot better for Derby uh, at the moment. And if you were a betting man, would you uh, pick them to go on and win the, win the title? I'd definitely bet on them to go up automatically. 
this is what we were saying back at the start of the season when it wasn't looking so rosy for Paul Warren and it felt like he was a little bit like one loss away from getting sacked. Stick with him. And the reason why is he's he's won that league twice. Or he's definitely got promoted out of that league automatically twice with Rotherham. So he knows what he's doing. So now we're in the business end of the season and there's about four points in it between top and fourth and Derby are there. Who do you want looking after your team, Derby County? Do you want Paul Warren, who's been there and done it twice? Or do you want someone like Messino at Portsmouth, who's doing a brilliant job, by the way, but has never experienced this before? If I'm a Ram, I'm really, really happy with how things are sitting at the moment. And I'm thinking to myself, we could go on and win this league, but certainly go up. Yeah, and another goal uh, for James Collins uh, at the weekend, which I think propels him up further in the uh, top goal scorers chart. He's on to 11 goals now. So yeah, he's uh, he's flying as well this season. League two. So Mansfield, who had a chance to go top, actually, uh, they lost 1-0 at home to Crew. I don't think Mansfield have lost many this season in the league. Um, Crew, I think we're in the playoffs uh, places anyway. So not that much of a shock, but uh, a big win for them. And Mansfield, a missed opportunity. Uh, with Stockport not playing to uh, to go top there. So they'll be kicking themselves with that. A team right up there who did win Barrow, uh, they won 1-0 against Tranmere. So I think they're up into fourth now, but they're absolutely flying at the minute. And then one other game just to mention, we spoke about uh, the Salford job. Obviously, Carl Robinson uh, picked up that that job. He drew two all with uh, Troy Deeney's Forest Green. So I think he was sent to the stands, actually, when he, Tom Owens, about 15 minutes in. Yeah, his... Um... His Salford managerial reign started um, with a 14-minute red card, and it, it wasn't it wasn't a typical Carl Robinson sort of red card that you'd expect because he's he's quite a boisterous, loud, um, angry figure. But actually, I think he just stepped on the pitch and like tried to stop the game from flowing or something like that, like stop a free kick from um, being taken quickly. And so the referee had no choice, really, but to send him off. But, yeah, um, good luck to him. Indeed. Yeah, and good luck to uh, Troy Deeney as well, who's moved to management and sporting a pair of glasses now, I see. So made his intellectual uh, side go up. Laurie, let's uh, move on to Yeovil then. So I uh, had a couple of derby games, one that happened at the weekend, one happening tomorrow night. So just a bit on their win versus Bath and preview ahead of uh, Taunton tomorrow. Brilliant win against Bath. Easily the best team we've played at Hewish Park in the league this season, Bath City, I thought. Um, they've got a winger called Jordan Thomas who's being linked quite quite um, similarly to Jordan Young, who we've got to EFL clubs, even the championship. I think Bristol City were touted to be interested in him. Um, they were really good, well-managed by Jerry Gill, who's an ex player and he's been at Bath for a long time now. Really, really good National League south side who we have now got six points off of out of our two games over the last six weeks. So that just shows our credentials as the title challenges if we needed to prove that anymore. Really, really good win. Tight game, but we managed to get um, the goals that mattered. Particularly the first one was like a what's becoming a bit of a trademark Yeovil goal now where we sort of switch the bay quickly to Michael Smith in behind and whip a ball across to someone like Jordan Young or, or Newball or um, or Reese Murphy. So brilliant, brilliant day. 5,000 at Hewish Park again at... Um, on Saturday, which is fantastic for National League South. And tomorrow, a bit of a different story. You travel to Taunton, obviously only half an hour up the road. 
who are in disarray at the moment. I mean, we've signed two of their players. A couple more went down to uh, Yate Town last week. A few more, I think, have just been terminated agreements because they just haven't got any money, I don't think. So not a nice position for Taunton to be in, but we need three points and uh, go 13 points clear tomorrow. So hopefully we'll do that. And the biggest Yeovil news since we last spoke was Jordan Young, in my opinion, the best player outside of the EFL, has signed a 2.5-year contract extension with the Glovers to keep him at Hewish Park until 2026, which was announced after the game on Saturday. So really, really exciting times to be a Yeovil fan at the moment. And well done to the powers that be at Yeovil for securing, like I say, a very, very highly regarded talent for us for the next few years. And even if he does leave, it'll have to be for decent money. Yeah, great bit of business that for, for Yeovil. Either tie down, as you say, Laurie, someone who's probably up there with the best players in non-league or guarantees a decent fee if a uh, top EFL side do want him. So good business all round there. Great stuff. And Glovers are flying at the moment. Boys, we'll finish up there just to say if people want their football fix this week, obviously tonight you've got the uh, FA Cup tied between Wigan and Man United that we previewed. That's at quarter past eight, but the FA Cup draw is on at 10 to 8. Uh before that so fourth round FA Cup draw on ITV before that and then midweek cup action you've got the EFL Cup um, which is Middlesbrough versus Chelsea semi-final on Tuesday night and Liverpool versus Fulham on Wednesday night and they're both uh, two-legged affairs to see who goes on to Wembley that's all we got time for chats we'll be back Thursday where we'll uh, review that kind of midweek action we'll look ahead to the weekend and the return of the Prem but pleasure as always have a good one Cheers, boys. One, two, three.